Good morning. Join me in the, listening to the words from Paul to the Galatians. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, we are in a unique and interesting series that's like, this is not particularly like a visitor-friendly series. I want to be honest about that. Uh, we're talking about very specific uh, theological and church issues. But I hope uh, if you are a visitor, that'll be interesting, engaging, encouraging, and that you'll be blessed by the discussion afterwards. Uh, this is the second out of sort of three where I'm looking at specific like theological positions. And it's a part of a bigger, bigger series, Women in the Kingdom, where we've been talking about the women in scriptures, women throughout the course of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and then we've been specifically addressing uh, women in church life, right? Can women preach? Can women lead? Uh, last week, we looked at complementarianism, uh, and I want to put up a slide that sort of shows the three positions we're looking at. It talks about men and women being of equal dignity and worth. Uh, but in the church, God has given men and women distinct roles, right? That men uh, serve as elders and preach, and that's true in the home as well, that men have this sort of spiritual headship, where they lead spiritually, and they see this all the way back in creation, rooted in Genesis, right? Adam came first, and then Eve. Uh, and so distinct gender roles is not a result of the fall. Well, this week, we're looking at Another position that's like the exact opposite, <laughs> egalitarianism. Uh, hi, Ben. Good to see you. Yep, he's, ta- he's telling everyone he's at church. Uh, believes the same thing. Men and women have equal value and worth, but believe that men and women have distinct roles in the church, or, or interchangeable roles in the church, right? Women and men can lead, can preach, uh, and that there are also interchangeable roles in the home. Men and women, husband and wife, can lead uh, uh, together, co, kind of co-leading, co-equal. Uh, and that gender distinctions are a result of the fall, Genesis chapter 3, and that redemption through Christ removes those. So we're going to be focused on that one. And then after Mother's Day, not on Mother's Day, we're going to look at a hybrid position that kind of talks about uh, male headship in the home, but equality in the church. Uh, I think that's an important one to look at. Uh, because it also tries to be faithful to Scripture and also just helps us understand the other positions a little bit better. All right, but first, before we do that, let's just take a moment and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for time together as a church family talking about difficult topics. Uh, We're excited to hear from you, hear from your word. Uh, We love you, we need you, we need you to be a part of this. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're looking at egalitarianism, the full inclusion of women in teaching and leadership in the church. Egalitarians uh, believe that men and women, right, equal in value, but also equal in roles, and that gender does not matter when it comes to roles in the church and in family. Now, I need to just say something very specific with that. It doesn't mean that those things don't uh, make a difference in how we go about tasks, right? That there are gender distinctions, uh, but that in terms of like theology, uh, men and women are, are essentially called to do the same thing together. 
uh, as a family. And they root this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, kind of where we started, right? Looking at Adam and Eve, God calling Adam and Eve to co-rule, to co-reign as priests, as kings in the Garden of Eden. And then they would see Genesis 3, right, where uh, Eve is cursed, Adam is cursed, he will rule over you, Adam will rule over Eve, husbands will rule over wives. It's sort of a result of the fall, so the gender roles Marriage roles are a result of uh, brokenness. Now, obviously, that's not what the complementarian position believes, but we do need to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, that's what we read last week, and I'm actually going to read it again because we're going to be addressing it through this lens again. And I know it's sort of like not a passage you want to spend a lot of time on, but it's good to wrestle with Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 say this. Uh, And this is the the passage that typically complementarians go to. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So an easy passage to understand. Uh, An easy passage that doesn't ruffle any feathers. But this is a part of God's word, right? Paul wrote this. The Apostle Paul So we need to understand this and to respect it and to wrestle with it. One of the ways we we do that is by by kind of figuring it out. (coughs) Excuse me. Maybe someone can get me a bottle of water from the, I think there's like a little mini fridge in there. Thanks, John. Uh, All right. First part of understanding the egalitarian interpretation of this passage is this, that Paul is responding to false teachers who have elevated women in inappropriate ways, right? So there's a context here that Paul is addressing. Now, when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, uh, he was writing to Ephesus. He was writing to a young pastor, Timothy, uh, in the community of Ephesus. Now, if you look at the Bible's sort of story of Ephesus, what do we know about Ephesus? Because we just did the book of Acts, right? And it is a long, thank you, John, it is a, uh, a pretty long book, right, like 20, 28 chapters. <clears throat> but a significant portion around Acts chapter 19, there's this big riot. You all remember what happened that led up to that riot? There was the riot at Ephesus where Paul challenged uh, the, the goddess Artemis and the silversmith started to lose money and then there was a, a whole riot that erupted and, and got Paul into some pretty big trouble. Well, egalitarians would look at that and say, clearly the cult of Artemis is set up here. What do we know about the cult of Artemis? Artemis of the Ephesians, right? Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, if you look at that cult, it elevated women uh, through uh, uh, childbirth, uh, through, uh, so Artemis was the goddess of childbirth, fertility. Apparently she even helped her own mother deliver her twin brother. So she was born and then immediately turned around and helped Apollo come out as well. That's pretty impressive for, for anyone, right? Um, right? So, but it, it elevated women. It kind of gave them this privileged status. There's this sort of feminist cult there 
uh, that gave women a sort of an unhealthy level of authority uh, and improper elevation. Uh, and there are perhaps some uh, false teachers in Ephesus, and we can actually see this in the letter to 1 Timothy. Right, so 1 Timothy uh, 1 verse 3 says this, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Okay, so maybe that's a reason that Paul's telling the women to be silent because they're a part of this cult or they've been influenced by it. Uh, they're uh, assuming unreasonable authority and teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 4 say this, <coughs> If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. So something's going on here, right? There is something in the, in the background of Ephesus that's unhealthy, that's wrong. Does it perhaps have to do with why Paul would give this prohibition for the women to be quiet, for the women to be silent? Now, uh, the idea, right, is that Paul is correcting this cult. They believed a lot of different things about creation, and that's perhaps why he brings up Adam being formed first and then Eve, right? Because, well, it was not Artemis and then Apollos, right? It was Adam and then Eve. Now, there are other uh, egalitarians, so there's a variety of perspectives. They also uh, make note of something called the New Roman Woman. Uh, so there was a class of Roman women, and we can see this if we kind of go back to this, Paul's um, commands of the women to like, not wear elaborate hairstyles and, and gold and jewelry. There was a class of New Roman women that were doing elaborate hairstyles and elaborate displays of jewelry. And it was a way that they were uh, elevating themselves in culture and also actually making themselves extramaritally available to other people. Uh, and so that's not good. And Paul's saying, don't do those things. When you come to church, you shouldn't be sending signals that match the, uh, the depravity of the culture. Uh, and so that's an interesting uh, theory as well. So egalitarians continue that Paul's prohibition then is not permanent, but limited to a disorderly, chaotic church situation or misuses of authority. This doesn't mean that there's not like lasting principles to be withdrawn from this passage that we can take out and apply, uh, but that there is a, that this Paul's prohibition on women is not like all places and all times. Now, we do see that there was improper teaching going on, right? Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. So maybe then the implication is that if women start to control their tongues, to not dress immodestly, to, to not be deceived by the cult of Artemis, that they will be able to then uh, enter into a position of leadership and begin to teach and preach as well. Paul doesn't outright say that, but perhaps there's a reasonable conclusion there. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not some eternal principles here, right? There are contexts where women should not preach and be in leadership. Perhaps you think of a Muslim country where if someone were to do that, it could create a real stumbling block for the gospel going forward. Uh, so this is like context specific. There's also a great deal of debate around Paul's Greek word here for authority. It is the Greek word authenteo, authenteo. And it's very, 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 very uncommon. <laughs> There's like 
this use in the New Testament and very few uses in the ancient world. So Paul doesn't use like the typical word for authority, exousia. Instead, he uses this one. And you can find other uses of this word, authentio, that mean like dominant authority or abusive authority. So perhaps Paul is saying women can't teach and, and exert dominant authority. That's one interpretation based on a careful study of the ancient culture as well as the scriptures here. And that would sort of line back up with this idea of, of Eve's desire being for her husband, right? And he will rule over you. Michael Bird does a nice job in this book. Uh, I always mess up this word, board. Bourgeois babes, is that how you say it? Bourgeois babes, bossy wives, and bobby haircuts. Uh, uh, it's a book, it's short, uh, but he kind of pulls all the contexts together. I think this is a helpful summary. Paul does not want women dominating by, profounding, by propounding false doctrines in the Ephesian house churches. Paul is writing to a situation where well-to-do women riding the cultural wave of feminine liberation are trying to assume aggressively the mantle of leadership before they have properly learned the apostolic faith. While they have come under the influence of false teachers who are rewriting the creation story to suit the inclinations of the new Roman women, Paul won't stand for it. All right? That's like a pretty concise summary of the egalitarian understanding of this passage. There are also some other things that we can look at. Paul provides a pathway forward, instructing women to learn quietly. So what does he do? Uh, he, he encourages women to sit quietly and learn. I mean, the, remember Mary and Martha, right? This idea that Mary could sit at the feet of Jesus is a revolutionary idea. That means she's, like, she's becoming one of his disciples, maybe not one of the official 12, but she's learning at his feet, and there's an expectation that she's going to put this into practice and share it with others. Right? And so we're letting the women learn. The women were often excluded from learning in educational environments in that culture. Right? So perhaps there's a stepping stone or a building block to then uh, laying the foundation for women teaching and leading. We also know that uh, Paul doesn't mean exhaustive silence, that like, the women can't peep. <laughs> right? We know that because if you go to 1 Corinthians 11.5, it says, but every woman, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. That's the same as having her head shaved. It's easy to focus on like the head shaving part, but also women are praying and prophesying. <laughs> like don't miss that. Because later in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says the women need to be silent. Okay, but is that about like women just need to be silent in general or is that because this is a disorganized church situation and Paul is trying to bring order to the chaos, right? We also know that there were women, women who taught. Uh, in Acts 18.26, we hear this. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla, a woman's name, and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. All right, so they instructed him, and Priscilla comes first, and it's not that, like, Aquila really did all the talking and Priscilla sat there quietly and prayed. That's not what we get from this passage. We get that together they were a team, and they were discipling and encouraging. All right, so we see some interesting examples here. Here are some strengths of this, of this perspective, right? I gave some strengths to complementarianism. I want to give some strengths to egalitarianism. It tries to understand the cultural context of the letter. Like, so often we just, like, read letters 
like they're written to us in modern 21st century America. And like, this is a, a letter that was written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> we need to, to bridge that gap culturally. Uh, ben Witherton III uh, is famous for saying this, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Right? So if you don't understand the context, it makes it really hard to understand the letter. Uh, now, another strength is that it emphasizes the world-changing nature of the kingdom of God. Right? When we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about like the weak flipping uh, and ruling over the strong. We talk about God elevating the humble and bringing down the prideful. Perhaps this matches up with that. And that brings us to today's passage, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses, uh, verse 28. Uh, it, it says this. It says, there is neither, uh, I don't know why I have, I have up, up through 29 here. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right? So this idea that like God has radically reshaped uh, uh, cultural and ethnic boundaries, Jew and Gentile, uh, social economic boundaries, slave nor free, and even gender uh, marriage boundary, boundaries, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So egalitarians will take this uh, passage and say, well, we're all the same now, right? We're all united in Christ, and we should read 1 Timothy through this passage. That's interesting. I don't know if I would go so far as to say this erases all marital roles, gender roles, spiritual roles, uh, uh, but the complementarians would say, but this passage is about salvation. This isn't about, like, family relationships or church relationships. And I sort of agree with that. But, uh, you know, I can see that in the first part, right? The Jews did believe, like, salvation came to the Jews. But I don't think the Jews ever believed that salvation only belonged to those who were free or only belonged to the slaves or only belonged to men or only belonged to women. So, like, I think Paul would have said, yeah, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, and stop there if he were just talking about salvation. It seems like he might be talking about like this reorganization of earthly relationships. But I don't know if I would go as far as egalitarians and say it just wipes them sort of completely clean or levels the field. Uh, so I, I don't know. Scripture, I'm always surprised. If you read through the New Testament, how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, uh, and it oftentimes means things that like I wouldn't have put together. So perhaps God is doing something in this passage that we don't fully understand. Now, here's the third strength to this. It looks at the big picture of Scripture and interprets difficult passages in light of it. I made two interpretive diagrams. This is always sort of dangerous, but I, I did it. Uh, so this is how I, th I kind of view the complementarian camp interpreting Scripture, right? You start with Paul's writings in 1 Timothy 2, and you interpret Genesis 1 through 3, uh, the people, the women in the Old Testament, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, the Samaritan woman, Mary Magdalene, Priscilla, you, you interpret them through the lens of 1 Timothy 2. And so you have to figure out, okay, how are these women not really teaching and not really holding authority? I think you have a really hard time doing that with most of them. Uh, I would, you know, to be gracious, um, you know, they would also argue that their view starts in Genesis 1 through 3, right? Adam came first. 
maybe I see that a little differently, but uh, I think this is the egalitarian position where they take all these other passages and they try to interpret Paul's writings through them, 1 Timothy 2, right? And, and that makes sense, because you want to take like the big story of Scripture. But to kind of counteract that, I also wrote Paul's writings, right? So it's not just one passage, it's also Ephesians chapter 5 that talks about male headship. How are you going to address that through Deborah, Holda, the Samaritan woman? That's why I think it's really important for us to come back and do one more week where we talk about a hybrid position, because I think it makes sense of both of these things. I think there are some weaknesses or some questions that I have about egalitarianism. I did this for complementarianism as well. Uh, and this is a pretty serious charge that I think egalitarianism needs to, to wrestle with. Does this view bypass the plain reading of scripture with theoretical context? Right? That's why I have a hard time just saying I'm, I'm fully egal. Because it does feel a little bit like, well, if I can just kind of come up with the right culturally reconstructed situation, then I can just, I don't have to pay attention to this passage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are other places in Scripture, right? Whenever you preach on the book of Colossians, you try to understand the background of Colossians. What's going on there? Or, or Ephesians, or any of the letters. So you do want to do that, and I do think egalitarians do a really uh, careful and thoughtful job, many do, not all of them, do a careful and thoughtful job of trying to root their context in scriptural clues, right? And we went through some of those today. There seems to be some scriptural clues. But just have to be careful that we don't want to strong arm the text with the context. I think Ben Witherton would agree with that as well. Another, the second question I have, or the weakness in this position, is does this view bypass other seemingly complementarian texts like Ephesians 5? Right? There's a big debate about headship in Ephesians 5. Does it mean source or does it mean like leadership? What does it mean? All right, so there's, there's this is a complicated talk, like discussion, right? Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. He calls them the head of their wives. Okay, so how does that fit in with this egalitarian position? Just source? Is that it? Ah, well, we're out of time. <laughs> so uh, one of the reasons I send out uh, like a follow-up email uh, during the week is so that if you want to go deeper, you can. Right? So I'm sharing a, a sermon uh, from a friend of mine uh, uh, Pastor Brandon Goad, and he preached uh, through this passage from a more egalitarian perspective. I encourage you to listen to it. Check out those resources. That'll come out on Wednesday morning. But I do want to end with the gospel, remembering that we are not saved by our uh, correct theological interpretation of difficult topics in the Bible. We are saved by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? We, are, we did communion first. Communion comes first for an issue like this. This is a secondary topic, uh, but as we go into discussion groups today, let's just, let's just heap on the grace, the humility, that we don't all have this figured out, and uh, be kind to one another as we, as we talk through a difficult topic. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to wrestle with something so difficult, so challenging. Thank you for helping us better understand this position and wrestling with both its strengths and its weaknesses. Lord, we love you. We know that this is a conversation starter, not a conversation stopper. And we pray that we would have a good conversation today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.